Welcome, everybody, to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Dietrich Steffen, who's the CEO and founder of Nubase Therapeutics. Dietrich has founded or co-founded 14 biotechnology companies, including co-founding Navigenics, which is one of the first direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies, and of course, Nubase Therapeutics that we're going to discuss today. Dietrich, thanks so much for joining me and great to be with you today. Such a pleasure to be here, Patrick. Thanks for having me. I'd love to just start with Nubase and the vision that you have for the company. How did you come up with the, the vision and the, and the idea for the company and where you're at today and what does the future look like? You know, it's interesting. The key observation that led to the formation of Nubase Therapeutics uh, was firstly that every disease is genetic. Uh, and we know that from heritability studies and gene identification studies, you know, either they're Mendelian single gene disorders, which collectively affect about 10% of the global population, or their cancer, a genetic disease of a single cell that causes those cells to grow uncontrollably, or infectious diseases where you are invaded by a foreign genome that replicates uncontrollably, and uh, or complex genetic diseases, often also called chronic diseases, where you in- inherit uh, genetic risk factors that are often then triggered by the environment. And so every disease is genetic. Yet, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has been waging the war at the protein level, uh, two steps downstream in the central dogma. And only more recently, with the uh, delivery of the human genome sequence, have we started to move upstream to nucleic acids in terms of drugging RNAs. But we aren't whole hog and, and with, you know, with full-throated efforts drugging the genome. And it just struck me as a non sequitur, uh, an obvious issue in our strategy to impact those who are suffering and dying. And so that, that's what led to Nubase. And and you say on your website, and I think a big motivation behind the, the company is exactly what you just said there, that most diseases actually are undruggable with biologic and small molecules. Why, why is that? Maybe you can dig into that thesis a little bit more. Yeah. So the, so, I mean, first is the observation that, for example, monogenic diseases of the five to 7,000 monogenic diseases only 5% of them have available therapies, which means 95% of the people diagnosed have no therapeutic option and often suffer and die with no hope. And so just that statistic alone is data that says, uh, at least in that category of disease, most of them remain undruggable. Uh, Now, when you go to oncology, uh, half of us on this planet that are alive today will, will be diagnosed with cancer in our lifetimes. And half again will die of that disease or set of diseases. And there's another statistic that sort of speaks to the dramatic unmet need in terms of undruggable targets. Um, and, and you can go forward. We're all aware of the issues in infectious disease. We've all lived through them over the last few years. And now we're on the cusp of monkeypox and who knows what uh, coming down the pike next. So, so that's the data. And then the question is, well, why do they remain undruggable? And my observation has been that as an industry, uh, we started therapeutic development efforts by literally taking material from patients who are suffering from diseases, cells, let's say, and engaging in high throughput screening where uh, with no a priori information, we literally poured tens, hundreds, millions of compounds onto these cells and hoped that some of them uh, would positively impact the disease process and, and not cause secondary toxicities that made them untenable as therapies. And and then uh, we would go in and engineer those chemicals uh, to improve potency and reduce off-target effects for the next decade uh, until finally, hopefully, 
uh, we would arrive with a therapy. And so uh, the process I outlined is is really, I'd say, literally hit or miss, very low probability of success, very slow, very expensive. And, and you simply, even if you just add up the number of diseases and the time and money it takes to go through that process, can't possibly develop therapies for all of the different uh, conditions that folks suffer from. And so I think that that's sort of the core reason why there remain so many undruggable diseases today is a bespoke therapeutic development process and, and lack of scalability. And maybe you could dig into your platform a little bit more and, and what is different. I know you all are operating at the DNA and RNA level rather than the protein level. What what are the key pieces of the puzzle? What what do you need to solve or others need to solve to actually um, you know, realize this paradigm of treating much closer to the source rather than at the, the very end of the central dogma, as you pointed out? Yeah. So, so we're as an industry, you know, there was a recognition that uh, genetics are central to almost every disease process, and it led us to sequence the human genome. And um, an industry has sprouted up that is nascent and fragmented, but has shown human proof of concept in being able to drug RNAs um, largely. Uh, one step closer to root causality. Now, the question is, well, why have DNA-based therapies lag? Why can't we or why haven't we really been able to drug the genome itself uh, as opposed to the messenger? And we believe it's very simply because the genome is double-stranded and has evolved to protect its information uh, that's existential in nature in terms of the blueprint of life that has to be passed through generations in, in exquisite robustness and fidelity. So, so if that's the case, what one would need to do would be to open up the genome without breaking it, sift through all six billion letters uh, with a molecule that uh, could recognize just the mutant gene, uh, be able to, once it's engaged with that mutant gene, increase, decrease, or even change gene function, because those are the three causal mechanisms that drive almost every human disease, and do so in a way where we could actually um, get the molecule to all of the tissues that are affected in these various diseases. As you know, we're largely relegated to the liver after systemic administration with genetic medicines, and so get past the liver, get into the brain, and so forth. Do so in a way with exquisite selectivity of sequence engagement, ideally to the single base level, so you can see mutations versus wild-type alleles, and certainly avoid any off-target engagement with highly homologous sequences elsewhere in the genome. Do so in a well-tolerated manner. Uh, so, for example, that you don't trigger the immune system. And we've seen issues with gene therapies in specific uh, related to the concept of one and done and not being able to go in and give a second or third uh, or lifelong chronic dosing paradigm. Uh, ensure that these are manufacturable without needing to go build bespoke factories. And then finally, that they're truly scalable so that we can print out uh, drugs that engage with any genetic target uh, that causes disease um, and have sort of known performance around that molecule so that we can accelerate through the development program. And so that's the problem that we started off solving. And after about three years of engineering work, I'm pleased to say that we've gotten to a solution that performs that way, and we'll be dosing our first patients likely early next year. 
And is that, I know you've got a couple of programs on your website, myotonic dystrophy, Huntington's, and, and a couple of really challenging to treat KRAS mutations in oncology. Is, is that in one of those, all three? Maybe you could walk through one of those examples and just, and just talk through what that process has been like from start to finish. Because I think in all of these cases, there's just no approved therapies that I'm aware of at all. So it really is kind of terra, terra incognita that you're marching into. Yeah. Well, I could start with our um, lead program, myotonic dystrophy type 1, a dominant genetic disease caused by a trinucleotide repeat expansion in the 3' untranslated region of a gene called DMPK. And so obviously the mutation is present from birth. The longer the repeat, the earlier the onset of the disease and the more severe the symptoms. Generally, patients suffer from muscle weakness and wasting, myotonia, an inability to relax after contracting their skeletal muscles, respiratory issues, particularly in the juvenile forms of the disease that often require going on a respirator, cardiac conduction defects that can be fatal, and then cognitive deficit. So it's a multi-system disease. There are no effective therapies. Um, it's actually the most common neuromuscular disease. It affects about one in 8,000 individuals globally. So what the pathogenic mechanism is that the the gene, both the mutant and the wild type, are transcribed. And then the mRNA on the, of the mutant gene uh, forms an aberrant hairpin structure. So the repeat itself folds back onto itself in the 3' UTR and causes a hairpin. And that hairpin uh, inappropriately sequesters critical splice effector proteins, specifically a protein called muscle-blind-like protein. MBNL1 that then decorates that hairpin and causes a nuclear aggregate. So now we have a double-stranded nucleic acid target in the nucleus uh, that we want to engage with. And so we've developed compounds, and we'll talk about the chemistry, that can invade that hairpin, open it up, and sterically displace the sequestered splice effector proteins. So now they're freed to do what they're supposed to do. And what happens is we, um, we resolve uh, the characteristic spliceopathy that causes the disease. Uh, so now the other component of this is that it looks like many features of this disease are reversible. Uh, so when you kick off that muscle-blind-like protein and you rescue downstream splicing of hundreds or thousands of other transcripts, you create healthy uh, proteins from those transcripts now that can perform normally. And so what we see in the animal model is that we can rescue the, char the characteristic myotonia. One of our collaborators in Paris, Genevieve Gordon, has shown that she can rescue aspects of the cognitive deficits. And a Baylor group has shown that uh, they can rescue uh, some or all of the cardiac dysfunction. And so that process can take between one and two months in, in the animal models. And we believe that's transferable to the human condition. And so Fingers crossed, you know, once we start dosing our first patients within a couple of months, we should see resolution of some of these major issues that patients have. Yeah, that's tremendous. And, and you've anticipated one of the questions I had, which was, you know, at, at, with many diseases, I suspect there's going to be a window of opportunity, but we may be surprised in many cases of just how wide that window of opportunity is. And, and I was also going to ask about delivery. It sounds like you'd need to get the correcting mechanism to the muscles, the brain, the heart. How do you solve that delivery challenge in, in this case and more generally? Yeah, it's, 
it's really two parts. So we have our pharmacophore, that's the active compound, and the biophysical characteristics of that have been engineered to be uh, low molecular weight, water soluble, and neutral in charge. Uh, and so they're, you know, on their own, they're, they're very easy to traffic throughout the body. And that's juxtaposed against what I'll call classic genetic medicines that are often um, heavily, heavily negatively charged. Uh, for example, antisense oligos or siRNAs are built on negatively charged backbones. And what happens is they get cleared um, by, for example, scavenger receptors in the liver and don't get past the liver to other organs. Um, so that's part one. Um, the second is that we have developed delivery technology that can be snapped on the end of these pharmacophores that allow them to interact with the plasma membranes of any cell in, in any tissue of the body. And once they interact, again, in a non-cell type specific way, they can be actively translocated across the plasma membrane via a process whereby they form an emulsion with they're, they're partially cationic, partially hydrophobic, and they can form an emulsion with a plasma membrane that's then pulled right into the cytoplasm and dumped into the cytoplasm where they then diffuse into the nucleus. And so what we've seen after systemic administration, when we couple those two, the delivery shuttles and the pharmacophores, is that we get access to every compartment, um, whether it's the skeletal muscle that's important in myotonia, the heart, or even the brain, uh, which becomes very important in these multi-system disorders, in particular, for example, in our Huntington's program, where the primary pathology is neurotoxicity in the brain, and we need to turn off that disease-causing protein. So, you know, it's really the combination of those two f modules together. That, so, yeah, if, if we took the Huntington's as a as a second example, our, the the drug would be administered systemically, and then how how do you actually you know set that? delivery shuttle up so that it's only dropping the cargo off, if I can extend the metaphor, into into the brain and, and muscle or whatever the couple of tissues that you're interested in. How, how have you worked out how to make sure it drops the cargo off in, in the right place, but not in the wrong places? Yeah. So, so our current strategy is to use a delivery technology that gets the compound everywhere. Uh, and so we don't discriminate as to which tissue we want to specifically target versus not target and really rely on the exquisite selectivity of the pharmacophore payload itself to only drug uh, the mutant gene of interest uh, and to essentially bounce off of uh, the genomes of cells that don't have a, a disease gene that's activated. And, and, and there's a nuance there where, where certainly your, your audience will recognize that if we're targeting the genome, every cell uh, will likely have the mutation. Uh, but in order for, for our technology to work at the DNA level, uh, we've talked about this double-stranded RNA target, which is really an edge case in terms of our core competencies, which are drugging the genome. The ability for the compounds to slip into the double helix and query for a perfect complementary match are really driven off of when a gene is breathing um, or being actively transcribed. Right. And, and the double helix is opened up that allows access. Uh, and so there you have a level of selectivity whereby the gene must be being actively transcribed, which generally only occurs in the tissues uh, that have uh, or express the pathologies. And so 
that's an example of where sort of broad-based delivery uh, can be mitigated in terms of um, any potential off-target effects uh, by, by the mechanisms by which the drug works. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's a very, it's a very elegant solution um, because if it's, if it's not breathing, if it's not actually active, um, then it's unlikely that that aberrant repeat or whatever it may be is, is causing any problems in that, in that tissue anyway. So we almost, uh, I'm sure there are some cases that that defy the logic where it may be expressed and and you don't want to mess with it but it feels like a generally a good principle that uh, if if you can do the in the in vitro work to really understand what that is and how it works then that that can give you at least some confidence that there aren't going to be off target effects before you go into humans or into animals yeah exactly exactly and you know the mechanism by which we target the genome i think is very interesting so and it gets to the composition of the molecules themselves you know when at, at thir- from 30000 feet the molecules look very similar to a single stranded oligonucleotide but when you zoom in on them uh, what you'll find is that the backbone is a synthetic polymer uh, neutral in charge and the nucleobases, uh, while they can be natural ACs, Gs, and Ts, are also often modified uh, to perform very differently than standard nucleobases. Um, and so the backbone is a polyamide backbone. These are actually derivatized glycine subunits that are snapped together on a peptide sequencer. And then we can use standard nucleobases, but also a class of nucleobases called Hookstein binders after the famous gentleman that actually characterized the hydrogen bonding of the double helix, which can scan the outside of the double helix by peering into the major groove and finding sequence complementarity without the need to open up the genome. So that's a very interesting class of nucleobase. And then we also have further modifications with a class of nucleobase called Janus bases, named after the Roman god with two faces on one head. Uh, and in that case, uh, when these oligos invade the double-stranded genome, they can bind both the Watson and the Crick strands uh, in a sequence-specific manner. And so you get this sort of interest, these interesting sets of structures that can be uh, identified and formed. And the entire mechanism of action, once you've engaged a, a locus, however you want to engage it with this, call it a naked oligo system, is that you interfere with or modulate machinery that runs on the rails of the genome. And so just one example, and this is how we uh, develop our compounds for Huntington's disease, is we put an oligo uh, onto the mutant transcribed allele of the HTT gene, the gene that causes Huntington's disease, such that RNA polymerase can't read through that gene and create a mutant mRNA, and thus no mutant protein is formed that causes the cell death in the brain, while the wild-type allele can still output its healthy version of the protein, which is important for life. And, and that's actually the same strategy that we use in our KRAS program. And so is, is it fair to say that that general paradigm is one that could be used for many, many gain-of-function type diseases, right? So that those are just two examples. But is that is that fair to say that many gain of function diseases could be targeted by essentially the same approach where if the one healthy copy is pumping out enough healthy copy to do what it needs to do, and you just need to get rid of the unhealthy copy, the strategy that we've been trying as a field for many, many years is, is find the protein, engage it, get some machinery to degrade it. But actually, you can go to the source and just never, never print it off in the first place. Absolutely. That, that's, that's, 
succinctly said that's exactly the strategy for gain of function mutations. And it's really, it's keyed off of the ability to, in many cases, sit right on top of the mutation, even if it's a very small point mutation and block uh, transcription, essentially. Now, there may be cases where we need to tweak and tune that strategy. Uh, For example, um, if the mutation is in a region, uh, let's say that's not not transcribed, um, and one could imagine a functional polymorphism, let's say in the promoter region that might, or upstream somewhere that might impact gene output. Then you start, you know, getting into things that you're an expert in. Uh, for example, you know, targeting uh, something that moves in cis with that functional variant in the population and allows you to still target the mutant allele and inhibit transcription, but but not uh, precisely on top of the mutation. And we can go downstream and inhibit translation as well of the mutant mRNA, although we think that's less uh, practical because there are many more copies uh, usually of the mutant mRNA than there are of the uh, gene itself and dosing and cadence of dosing and so forth become a little more uh, involved. But yeah, in general, for gain-of-function mutations, we block transcription. And and how about strategies for loss-of-function mutations? What what can you all on the platform do in those cases? Yeah, so uh, for loss-of-function mutation, either where one copy of the gene uh, it has ceased to output uh, a functional protein, and that category of diseases, as you know, are generally haploinsufficiencies, or where both copies of the gene have ceased to output, and those are uh, recessive loss of function diseases. There are several strategies that we can use to increase healthy protein output. So in the case of a haploinsufficiency, what we've shown is that we can drive the healthy copy of the gene harder by opening up the double helix uh, proximal to the promoter. And we've shown that we can boost the ability for RNA polymerase and the transcriptional machinery to engage uh, with the locus and transcribe. And we often get 20, 30, 40% increased output from that healthy allele, which is generally enough to rescue the phenotype. So that's, that's the core strategy in addressing haploinsufficiencies. Now, when we get to complete loss of function of both alleles, uh, we can use established strategies, for example, at the RNA level to pop out truncating mutations and form a functional protein, you know, by inhibiting uh, inappropriate early um, truncation of the of the protein itself or avoid nonsense mediated decay. Uh, complete loss of function where both alleles, for example, are gone is the one use case that we can't address with our technology and where gene replacement strategies, either at the mRNA or at the gene therapy level, I, I think become, or, or enzyme replacement therapy, uh, become, you know, become the core strategy that, that needs to be invoked. You all have a very rare opportunity as a, as a company that I think few do, which is you've got a platform that's potentially able to address thousands of, of diseases. And yes, as you know, there are there are companies that focus on a single disease or a set of diseases because they have a small molecule and an understanding of biology that, that can treat that disease. But I think you all have a very different opportunity in front of you, which is uh, one of the challenges is how, how many diseases do you treat? And at what, uh, there is no, the sky's the limit, but there's, there are really practical challenges to, you can't do a hundred at once or a thousand at once, at least not yet. What, what does that 
scaling process look like? What do you need to do now to get to the place in the next couple of years that you may be able to to be um, you're having the impact that I think the the platform sounds like it could have? Yeah. So, so the vision really is to create a single technology that can, uh, in a scalable manner, uh, impact really any, any disease. Uh, and, uh, and so getting to that vision, let's say in 20, 30 years where we can simply click together Lego blocks, delivery backbone, nucleobases, even for private mutations, where we understand the performance of the molecule a priori. The FDA is comfortable with, you know, the tox profile of, of this chemistry and, and how well we as a company can dial the molecules in bioinformatically before we let them loose in a patient, for example. You know, that requires a methodical and, and, and strategic build out to get to that point of, and some foresight. And so we think about them as achieving various sort of uh, horizons or plateaus um, over time. The first is obviously, and we've passed this, is establishing the platform chemistry, chemistry and proving that it works uh, repeatedly in transgenic uh, animal models with uh, human mutations uh, built into them. So we can now take these molecules we've made, uh, administer them systemically, either subcutaneously or IV. They can get delivered to the tissue of interest, whatever that tissue is in therapeutic concentrations, get into the cell, get into the nucleus, engage the target and resolve the disease. And so we've now done that with four different genetic targets affecting a variety of different tissues and so forth. And so that was the first vista that that we needed to meet, and I think uh, to convince ourselves uh, that that we remain, con- you know, deeply convinced that we have a scalable platform. The second is um, getting our first patients dosed in our first indication and showing that the compounds continue to be very well tolerated, but that we can also resolve the disease in humans. And it's it's the reason that we picked a disease that we believe can show clinical uh, genetic disease that that has aspects that are reversible in a very short period of time and weeks to a few months, um, myotonic dystrophy type 1. So if everything you know goes as planned by mid-2023, we'll have shown that this chemistry that's never been in humans before performs the way it performs in animal models. Uh, and that'll be our second VISTA. Then we would like to have three drugs in the clinic or in the market about five years from founding. So let's say by 2025, 2026. And then our internal goal is 10 by 2030. So 10 drugs in the clinic or on the market by 2030. Again, that's not as a public company, that's not what we're promising, but that's our internal bullseye. And then once once we reach that point, we believe we'll have a level of understanding of the platform where we can begin to scale our output and do so with with partners where we share the load with a now validated platform technology. So that's the build out. Do you yeah. do you have a sense of um yeah, the, the stats are pretty clear in the industry. It takes ten or fifteen years, a billion plus dollars. Some people say it's through four billion to to develop a new drug and and you know clearly that's that's too long and too much time period, but it's certainly the case for ultra rare and rare diseases. What, what do you have a sense of what's holding us back there? And, and do you see a path where we could get that process down to three years and a hundred million, you know, as a, as a, as a goal number one, what would, uh, what would it take to live in that kind of world? 
Yeah. Well, I think those stats are exactly the stats I'm familiar with. And, and the cost of developing uh, drugs has not gone down over time. It's, it seems to have stayed static with, with those strategies. And I'll call them the non-scalable strategies that we had talked about before, where every drug development effort is a brand new bespoke endeavor. So what we have already shown in our first program is that we've gotten from target selection to the cusp of IND filing for, let's call it about 50 million. And we think the clinical development should be, let's call it another 50. Um, and so our first compound with all of, all of the potential accelerated approvals and so forth for a completely unmet need, we think should take five years and let's say 100 million. Now, the second program, we've already started to see efficiencies uh, because it's the same strategy. You know, we can identify the precise sequence that we want to target. Now we only have to make, uh, let's say, 100 candidates to cover the chemical space of interest as opposed to several hundred in the first program because we've gotten better at the SAR and, and how to design these things. And we've gotten to hits much more, much more expeditiously. And so there's the potential now to start shaving time and money off of each subsequent development program with these increased learnings. And that's, of course, the promise of a platform. Uh, and we recently went through an exercise uh, with a brand new target. And we believe that uh, it's two years from target selection to IND. We think we can get there. You know, we probably are stuck uh, due to the laws of physics at 18 months um, as, as sort of the minimal time it takes. But and then, you know, 30 million. And so you can already start to see in these early days how the cost and, and speed are changing. And and then, you know, with parallelization and, and resources uh, after full validation, we think that, you know, that then it starts to get interesting in terms of increased output. Um, you, you all went public much earlier than most biotech companies do, and you, you referenced this earlier. I, I was curious what drove the decision behind that, because it has, I'm sure it's pros and cons uh, being a public company. There's there's much more that you need to do, but you've also got access to bigger bigger capital markets, and it, it um, forces a level of maturity in a company that private companies don't always necessarily have. I was, I was curious what drove that decision. Yeah, so... So ideally, it was about, well, just for context. And so in the introduction, you had mentioned that I've built some companies in the past, and and those had uh, generally been venture-backed for the traditional way of building a biotech company where you take VC investment in a Series A, uh, and with that first investment, the boilerplate is you generally give up 40% ownership in the company and uh, the investor gains control of the board, and there are different classes of shares that are created that uh, benefit the investor more than the people that are building the value in the company. And and finally, investors have a a, a portfolio based mindset in deploying capital, where you know, let's say, only one of many investments need to go through the roof to pay for the losses across the entire portfolio. And so all of those concepts are completely misaligned. I wouldn't say completely, but are misaligned with the incentives of the people that are committed to this one company and bringing all of their hard-earned expertise and perspective to the table. And so in my pattern matching over the last 20 years, I've often seen management and 
the investor board, you know, representation goes sideways. And there's always this constant effort that's required to connect, keep those two connected in the best interests of the company. And it's quite frankly exhausting. And, and for people that know how to build companies, it injects more risk rather than less risk. And so that was the mindset that we went into building this company with, which was, all right, if we really believe this is the final generation pharmaceutical company, and it's the culmination of everything we've ever done in our careers before, you know, participate in the genome project, you know, find causal variants, help build the diagnostics infrastructure for the country. Uh, why would we inject additional risk into it? And so we went public and uh, have been building the company in the public markets over the last approximately three years. I have maintained complete alignment in terms of board and management. And so I've handpicked each board member because of their expertise. So for example, there are people like Eric Richman on the board who founded Metamune, uh, which was acquired by AstraZeneca for $16 billion based on real success. And, and the list goes on. So they had to have done it before, uh, ideally multiple times, and they had to have emerged undamaged after that process. And that was that was the the type of people that that I wanted to call on. And it's worked beautifully. You know, we've made tremendous progress. There's no friction, complete alignment across all of our stakeholders, whether they're management board or investors, in terms of upside. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, we're poised to get clinical data in the short term, which will be transformational for the company. Tremendous. I, I did want to ask what, what you learned from Navigenics and other companies that you started over the course of your career, because you really have started a company in, in many of the major parts of the genomics and precision medicine ecosystem, and you were involved in the early days of the Genome Project. How is the culmination of all that learning coming together? Because it seems from the outside, new bases is it you're not just innovating in one area. There's five or six big areas where you've made pretty significant uh, innovations compared to, to to what's being done. So what, what have you learned over these last uh, decades that you're bringing together in, into this new company? I'd say that maybe there are two major learnings and then a million minor ones, which we probably don't have time for. But I think um, the major learning is that it's very... I, at least for me, it's very important to have a macro perspective on the core opportunity. And, and you know, we've seen so many people uh, in this industry, you know, going after kind of a second, third, fourth, me too sort of generation of, of technology that I think may be incrementally beneficial while the big opportunity is sitting over here and, and everyone, you know, because they're so used to it, can't see it anymore. And so in our example, it's drugging root causality as opposed to fighting the battle on the fringes. And it's just so obvious. But I think, you know, despite it being so obvious, the vast majority of people continue to fight the battle over here. And so I, I think that and Peter Thiel put this so well in his book, From Zero to One. It's really been inspirational. And he's an investor in another one of my companies. And so I admire the ability to look at the world uh, and not, not sort of fall into the trappings of uh, established uh, ways of looking at the world. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is, I mean, these are problems that no one has ever uh, tried to solve before. Uh, by definition, that's what we do in biotech and and course, other industries. But that necessitates, uh, I think, creative problem solving and not just, 
either getting emotional about a problem or thinking a problem is unsolvable. By definition, every day we come to work, it's it's another problem. It's just problem, 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 right? And you have to you have to look at it in a different way so that you get through it. But there's also this this sort of um, weight in terms of you know not just go, getting overwhelmed with problems all day long, seeing them as uh, interesting intellectual challenges and solving for them. And, and I think that's there's something special in that, that that is important. Have you kept one foot in your academic research roots or have you gone two feet in because that you you have had a very successful, um, you know, more call it tr- traditional 20, 30 years ago, academic uh, genomics research career today. It's a lot more blended and there are people like yourself and George Church, who I think is on uh, on your scientific advisory board, who have one foot in, one foot out in a bunch of different exciting companies. Where where did you personally fall on that spectrum? Do you like to have one foot, one foot in, one foot out? Do you go two feet in and then two feet out <laughs> on uh, on alternating years? Or how, how do you think about it? Yeah, I, I have I have now gone two feet in uh, on the industry side, and, and there was a period of time where I, I tried to keep one foot in and and one foot out, and and wasn't quite frankly very very good at it. So I, I've decided that industry is the is the place for me, and and have loved the that that working environment. I mean, it's um, no no less excellent in terms of the people that are in that area of this industry. In fact, sometimes the, the people, um, you know, because of the, the sheer magnitude of dollars that are flowing into some of these efforts often have to, you know, have um, evolved in a different way uh, where there's a lot more on the line in terms of decision making and so forth. The one thing I would say, though, and I think this is critically important in this macro environment, is that I lean on my scientific training very heavily when I make decisions either about founding a new company or about what path to take in this current company from a development perspective. And very often now what you see out there in the world are either very young folks founding companies, which I think is great and you bring that vigor of youth, but sometimes you do need the depth uh, behind it. And, and I would urge folks to, to surround themselves in that way. But also on the investor side, I mean, there is so much innovation and so much of it is now being packaged up into companies and being put in front of investors that the sheer volume of it is overwhelming and the complexity of it is dazzling is the only way I can think of saying it. And so how is it even possible for investors to make deeply insightful uh, decisions these days? And, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing this massive downturn in the biotech markets right now is investors have just finally realized it's, it's really hard and you can't just follow the pack because, you know, one, one person makes a bad decision on the front end of that and then everyone jumps in behind it and, and it collapses. And so I, I don't quite know what the answer is, except I think that investors should take a deep breath and really focus on the fundamentals when making decisions. Yes. And and I think for anyone else who hasn't been following this, it has been, you know, last six, six months, maybe even nine months, especially small and mid-sized biotech companies, you know, the, the industry as a whole has lost 70% ish if it's on paper value. Of course, what that doesn't, that is merely a 
as as uh, I don't know who the it was one of the either Buffett or Munger says in the short term, the stock market is a voting machine in the long term. It's a weighing machine. Right. So it's it's merely a voting machine right now. We'll have to see in the fullness of time what actually shakes out. But the reality is there are a mixture of companies that have, you know, maybe to your point, not very transformative science mixed in with companies that have very transformative science and great fundamentals. And, and right now, people are struggling to sort out the difference. And so you have a whole industry that is trading at probably significantly below what it's worth. But it takes, uh, you know, somebody who's got an MBA and, uh, and years of experience and a PhD in genomics to figure out what the heck is going on under the hood. How has that impacted, you know, you, you personally kind of sitting there in the in the cockpit, so to speak, and seeing, you know, this slide happening all around you, but you know, knowing that you've got a three, four, five, six to 10 year plan that you've got to execute. Yeah, I mean, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. The just the guts of building these medicines is so incredibly complex and, and intricate. And it's almost like building a, a Swiss watch uh, is, is a good visual. And now you've got a macro environment that adds a whole nother layer of, I wouldn't say similar complexity, but another layer of of just work. Um, and so from that perspective, it's annoying, but you know, we have, and we have to do things that we wouldn't usually want to do, like turn down the heat on some programs to extend the runway, to make sure that the core value drivers, for example, our clinical data are, are fully capitalized and don't slow down and, and anticipate when the market comes back and so forth. And so I'm just describing extra, an extra set of considerations that we need to bring to the table because of this macro environment. But at the same time, I think it's healthy for the industry in that I think a lot of fluffy stuff, IPO'd, you know, the crossover, private investors behind that uh, cashed out, and those companies are probably going to go away uh, and not continue to create noise in the system and really focus on the true value creators, the innovators, hopefully allow investors to also focus because now there's a smaller set of companies and perhaps hopefully bring a new discipline to their thinking as to what to invest in. So there's some pain, but I think the the quality as as is most of the time the case will make it through and and uh, continue to build value. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I, I know we're running up against time here. I'd just like to say thank you so much for taking the time. It was a, a great discussion. I'm a huge fan of what you all are doing and working on it. Really great to understand in a lot of detail what's going on under the hood. So I'm excited to watch your journey for the next few years and hopefully see you all uh, scale up and execute on that vision. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you today. It was a real pleasure and, and hopefully we can stay connected moving forward. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening to the podcast. As always, please share it with a friend if you liked the episode. And we'd love it if you could leave a review on your favorite podcast player or just let somebody else know that you really liked it. Thanks so much again for your time and we'll see you next time. 